I think the greatest challenge that faces evangelical churches like ours here in Canada today is the challenge to so adapt in these rapidly, radically changing times so that it can be said of us, just as it was said of David many years ago, that we have served our generation. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that's our calling. That's the challenge of a Christian church. I think it's the number one core characteristic of churches that are geared for the 21st century. Some churches are anchored in the past. Some churches are geared for the future. And churches that are 21st century churches are geared for the future. And one of the core characteristics of such churches is that they are committed to serve their generation. We're not left to our imagination as to how we may go about that. I think there's a very helpful model that will be useful for you here in your church and for many of our churches across Canada. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn with me, please, to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And I'd like to take you through this little model that will be helpful and uh, transferable right here to you and your church during these very strategic days. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles. That's way back in the Old Testament. Uh, it's the white unmarked pages in your Bible. Uh, 1 Chronicles. How often do we study from 1 Chronicles? Well, every once in a while you come across a jewel. And uh, we're about to look at that jewel, one of those jewels this morning. It's found in verse 32 and it says this. It says, Of the sons of Issachar, Men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs or their leaders were 200, and all their kinsmen were at their command. Did you notice the three things that are said of these 200 leaders? Each of them has a direct application to us. If we really want to be a 21st century church, really committed to serving our generation. The first thing that was said of them implies that such churches and such leaders are men and women who are in touch with their times. It says of these leaders that they understood their times. They understood, for example, in chapter 10, when King Saul and Crown Prince Jonathan were slain in battle, that this was the discipline of God upon the leadership in Israel because they had presumptuously sinned. As a result, Saul was disqualified from leadership, and his family was disqualified from following him in leadership. So when the headlines of the newspaper screamed the news the next morning, King Saul slain, David, Jonathan died in battle, they understood this was the hand of God and the discipline of God upon the nation. They were in touch with their times, understanding the days in which they lived. They understood in the next chapter, chapter 11, When a small group of people took a young lad by the name of David and crowned him king in a little town called Hebron, that this was God's appointed heir, that God's intention was that David become the king of Israel and that the borders of David's kingdom spread so that it would take in all of the whole land of Israel. The interesting thing about these folks in a rather obscure little tribe off in the distance That they weren't isolated, they weren't remote, they weren't distancing themselves, they weren't separatists. 
They were in touch with the times. They knew what was happening. They sensed what was happening. They were aware of it. They were interpreting it. They were looking at it. They were in touch with their times. 21st century churches. Spiritual leadership in 21st century churches are characterized, first of all, by being in touch with their times. We may not always like it, and we may not even agree with it, but you can't serve a generation if you're not in touch with your times. When it comes to serving a generation, it's a little more difficult in the complexity of our day because generations become sub-generations or a composite of sub-generations and the variations and changes are, are, are so rapid and fast we can hardly keep up with it. For example, when I try to look at our generation that we're tra- called to serve, I find it easiest to get a handle on it by looking at it in terms of three sub-generations that make up our generation. And let me introduce you to these three sub-generations. And I'm going to ask Clark to come up here first of all. Clark's going to represent the builders. These were people born before 1945. They've got a history. They've got an investment. They're part of the furniture around in these churches. And uh, we're indebted to their leadership and their faithfulness and their service all over the years. These are the builders. It's a sub-generation in our generation today. And over here is Edith. Come on up here, Edith. She's going to represent the boomers, this wonderful gang of people who are the emerging leaders in our business communities, our educational world, and in our church ministries as well. Edith was the only woman in the church we could get to admit what age group she was in. (laughs) So that's why we've got Edith up here, and we're glad she's here. Jonathan, come on up here. Jonathan is the person who's going to represent the busters, this weird and odd and wonderful and perplexing and strange group of young men and women. These are called the Busters, and they're going to sit right over here. And thanks, Jonathan, for being our representative. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our generation. Now, if you want to push me just a little bit further, I'll have to admit to you that away over here, they're the super seniors. And away down here, there are the young people and the children. But in our auditorium this morning, this is our generation. And we're called upon to serve this generation, not this generation, and not this generation, but this generation. And that's no easy chore. And that's because of the diversities, the rapid changes that have taken place from one subgroup to another group. Let me see if I can just give you a little picture of some of the areas where that happens. For example, when it comes to program style... Clark likes programs that are formal. He wants to know when it's going to start, when it's going to stop, when the refreshments are going to take place, and exactly what we're going to do in between. He wants it all nicely organized. Not so with Edith. Edith likes to have things a little bit more loosey-goosey. She's interested in the relationships, and she wants to have interaction and relationships developing in these parties and in these programs that are involved. When When it comes to Jonathan... He's into spontaneity. Jonathan gets together with his group on a Saturday night and they hang out. Now, nobody, absolutely nobody knows what that means. (laughs) But they love it. They just get together and they hang out to watch and see what's going to happen. Now, to serve this generation in putting together a program in a church is no easy chore. But that's the challenge. And that's the call. It's to serve this generation with a program 
where there's such differences that are involved. When it comes to focus, Clark loves programs. He looks down the church bulletin and he says, hey, we don't have a program on Thursday night. We need another program. Look at all these buildings and all the money put in these buildings. And he just loves programs. Edith, however, says programs are all right if they serve people. It's people that are important. And if this program that we may have had for 5 or 10 or 15 years is no longer meeting the needs of people and serving people, that program needs to go. We need to have programs that are meeting the needs of people because people are the thing that's important. It's not the programs. When it comes to Jonathan, he says, well, now people are important, of course, but you've got to go one step further. It's people living in community that's important. So Peter likes to, Jonathan rather likes to talk about getting together and building relationships. He likes to talk about being transparent and being vulnerable and being accountable. Now that makes Clark perspire. <laughs> Because Clark isn't really comfortable with this transparency thing and this accountability thing. But that's what Jonathan says is important. It's people in community and relationships, building those kind of intimate relationships. When it comes to motivating to ministry, Clark and his group are motivated to ministry out of a sense of duty and responsibility. Edith is motivated out of a sense of personal fulfillment and satisfaction. Jonathan is motivated out of it by a challenge. He likes a challenge. He says, let's go for it. Let's try it again. Let's do it a little differently. Last time it didn't do, do too well, but let's go for it again. So their motivations are different, and they're motivated into ministry very differently. Touch on an area that raises a spark or two. Let's talk about worship. Mark, or Jonathan, or Clark over here. <laughs> Clark worships best in an environment of reverence. He likes a little quietness. He likes to be able to think. He likes to be able to hear the words and the music. He's a really strange man, <laughs> see? But it's in that quiet reverence that Clark worships best. When it comes to Edith, she worships best in an attitude and an environment of interaction and dialogue. She likes to be talking and hearing questions and answers, participating and involving. That's the environment where she worships best. When it comes to Jonathan, he worships best in an environment of energy, where there's something happening, there's a little bit of noise. Well, they wouldn't call it noise, but that's what some of us call it. There's, there's clapping of feet, there's the moving of the body, there's the standing up and the feet. It's moving and it's energy, and Jonathan just loves that sense of energy. And it's in that kind of environment he worships so, bad, so well. You see, this is our generation that we're called to serve. It's no easy challenge to put together a worship service for this generation. But that's the generation that we've been called to serve. If you really want to turn up the temperature, talk about the music. Because we know that this fellow loves those hymns, those good old hymns of the faith that have got some good doctrine in them. Good theology there. And he loves those good hymns. Uh, Edith, she's in between because Jonathan over here loves the contemporary praise courses. The ones that uh, really focus on the emotion rather than the cognitive. Uh, Jonathan, with his praise courses, likes to sp speak to the Lord directly. Uh, Clark, with his hymns, likes to speak about the Lord. And there's some differences that are involved here. And, and um, Edith sort of bounces back and forth, and uh, she's, she's caught in the middle here between the two of them. She's playing the game with them all. You see, that's the challenge involved here. When you move into my field, putting together a sermon for this generation is no easy task. Because I know what Clark likes. Clark likes expository sermons. I know what Edith wants. Edith wants how-to sermons. She wants to be taught how to be a godly woman. 
how to be a Christian businesswoman. Uh, people in her generation want to uh, have some instruction on how to be uh, a godly husband or a godly wife or how to be a, an effective parent. Uh, she wants some how-tos that come out of the Scriptures. Jonathan, he wants us to deal with the issues, the social issues, the current issues, the political issues, the relational issues in our world today. So he wants us to deal with those relations and uh, those relationship issues. That's the challenge of preaching a message to our generation. But this is the generation that we're called to serve when it comes, for example, to the support of missions. Clark supports mission organizations. Edith supports missionaries. See, she's into people. Busters aren't devoted with a lot of loyalty to organizations and institutions. They're loyal to these individuals. And so they support people. And Jonathan, he supports projects. It's his generation that have given us crisis pregnancy centers and uh, homes for delinquent children and kids in trouble with the law. Uh, he's into projects here. And uh, they all have a different motivation for their involvement and mission. See, we're living in such diversity with the generation that we're called to serve. They all have a little bit of catchword. Um, Clark's favorite phrase is, are you sure? Are you sure? Let's not go too quickly now. Let's think about this. We should pray about this for at least one more year. And um, I know three or four more committees that we should have discussed this. Uh, see, and that's because the builder generation, they've gone down the road. They've stumbled a few times. They've had a few failures. And they'd like to see things sort of settle down. They're into stability. They want a little bit of security. And so they're saying, well, let's not move too quickly. Let's slow down here a little. Edith, on the other hand, her favorite phrase is the Nike model. Just do it. You know, let's get on with it and let's get it done. And the busters over here, they say, whatever. <laughs> now, you know I've exaggerated this, don't you? And you know that the lines aren't nearly as finely drawn as I've suggested. You can take any one of these subjects and you may find yourself in this chair in one of them and you might find yourself in that chair in another. So the lines aren't nearly quite as finely drawn as I've suggested. But there are those lines. And that's the diversity that's represented in our community and in our Christian church. The challenge is to understand that in the context and against the backdrop of that diversity, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's very difficult. In this generation, as a matter of fact, there are churches all across our country that are being torn apart and being broken to pieces just because of this diversity. How do you preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace when you've got this and this and this? That's the challenge that we're confronting in our day and age today. Part of the answer is to understand fellowship. Fellowship is the um, sermon theme for today in your 40 Days of Purpose. A fellowship is your study theme during this coming week. If we can understand a little bit of fellowship and how to promote fellowship, we're going to build into our community, to our family. We're going to build into it the dynamics that are calculated 
and guaranteed to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace instead of letting the enemy get in and tear it apart and cause devastation. Well, thanks, folks, very, very much for letting me use you today and helping me out. The first thing that was said of these leaders in Issachar was that they were in touch with their times. They understood their times. As a result of that, the next thing that's said of them is they knew what Israel should do. They knew what Israel should do. What did Israel need to do? What did the tribe of Issachar need to do? Well, what they decided to do in chapter 12 was to recognize that all of these other tribes had got behind David. They'd thrown the resources behind David in order to establish David as king of Israel and in order to establish the boundaries of his kingdom over the whole land of Israel. And what they decided to do was to join them, to become part of it to throw their resources behind it, and watch this word, and to cooperate with them in the establishment of David's kingship over all the nation and the expansion of his boundaries over all the land. That's a good picture for fellowship. What I see in these men of Issachar is that they were not only in touch with their times, but they were in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is guiding and leading the nation in order to preserve unity, in order to propel the nation forward. And Issachar over here says, we need to cooperate, become part of, and move forward together. It's a great picture. I think that's really the essence of being in step with the Spirit. It's understanding what God is doing in the midst of the day and age in which we're living, and moving forward with God as he's doing this by the Spirit. What would that look like? What would that mean for you folks here at Rexdale Alliance? What would that mean for an evangelical church in our country today that's really committed to preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with all of this diversity that exists here? What, what, what would that mean? Well, I think what it would mean is them really taking seriously a biblical concept of fellowship. Fellowship is more than having coffee and donuts at Tim Hortons. Fellowship is more than getting together after Sunday evening service and having a little social time in a Christian's home with other Christians. None of that's bad. Most of it's real good. But that's not fellowship. Fellowship refers to the social relationships that exist between God's people. And the social relationship that they exist are expressed in their cooperation in the work of the kingdom of God. It's their cooperation in the work of God. That's Christian fellowship. It's Christians cooperating according to their giftedness, according to their skills, according to their experience, according to their age. It's their cooperating together for the progress of the work of God. That's fellowship. Now, if we were going to take that seriously, what would that look like and what would that mean for us here in our church? Well, I want to make some suggestions to you. The first thing it would mean, I think, is learning to balance the integration and the segregation of the subgenerations. That is, 
It's important for us to understand that there are times when the builders need to be able to get together and have their own prayer meeting and their own Bible study and their own social time with their, their style. It's important for the busters to be able to get together and have their own kind of Bible study and their own kind of prayer meeting and their own kind of social engagement. It's important to have to allow for the segregation of the subgenerations. But it's also important to have the integration of those subgenerations because that's family. Families involve grandparents and parents and children. It involves the generations. A family is an intergenerational thing. And that's what a church is. It's an intergenerational thing. So there are times when there's the integration of the generations. In most churches, like yours here, the integration happens on Saturday night or Sunday morning. This is the best time to have the integration of the subgenerations. And let's see it's how it's working. If you're in Clark's family over here, if you're a builder born before 1945, why don't you stand up? Let's see how many builders we have in the audience. All of the builders stand up. Now, come on. I see a couple of other women that should be standing here. <laughs> oh, there's a guilty conscience. Oh, she's good. <laughs> okay. Thank you. They're the builders. We love the builders in the church. They're the ones who have got the history and indebted to them so much. How many are part of Edith's family? The uh, boomers. 46 to 64. Hey, lots, look at the bunch of boomers here. Great. This is the emerging leadership in the country and in our business world and educational world and in our churches. Thank you. Take your seat. Any busters here this morning? Let's have the busters stand. Oh, all right. Good night. Talk about a power trip. Look at them. All right. We're feeling slightly overwhelmed. Thank you. Take your seats, please. See, that's what a Sunday morning service is here at the Rexdale Church. It's an opportunity for the integration of the subgenerations. And that's an important part of fellowship. It's an important part, uh, part of cooperating together for the advancement of the kingdom of God. We try to balance the segregation and the integration of the subgenerations. The second thing that will be very helpful is to distinguish between biblical principles, biblical precepts, and personal preferences. If we're going to really cooperate together for the advancement of the kingdom of God, we understand that some things are principles. Christ is the head of the church, the priesthood of all believers. We believe that here. But the church, evangelical Christian church down the street believes it too. Now, they may practice it differently than you do, but that's the nature of a principle. Principles can be expressed differently in America than they are expressed in Indonesia. But churches, both of which may believe that Christ is the head of the church. But a principle by its very nature can be expressed different ways. Precepts are different. Precepts are to be ordered. For example, when Christ said, a new commandment give I unto you that you love one another, that was an order. That was a command. And precepts are to be ordered. So there are principles that can be interpreted and applied in a variety of ways. There are precepts, and precepts are orders that are to be obeyed. And then there are personal preferences. Now, will it surprise you? Would you be surprised if I were to point to the chart and say, everything there is a preference? That's all it is. It's all it is. Builders have their preferences. Boomers have their preferences. Busters have their preferences. That's all they are. We all have our preferences. And the battles that are tearing to park Christian communities today are preferences, just simply preferences. 
So we need to distinguish and not make those preferences precepts. See, what happens, you take a preference and you elevate it to the point of a precept, then it becomes an issue of right and wrong. So you say, this is the way it's done. This is right, that's wrong. And when you start doing that, you know what invariably happens? You start to break the precepts of the scriptures. Like, for example, love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And Christians across the country will blatantly, flagrantly disobey that command by taking some of their preferences, elevating those preferences to precepts, and making it an issue of right and wrong. If we're going to really practice fellowship so that we're going to cooperate for the advancement of the kingdom of God with all of this diversity, it'll be really important for us to distinguish between principles and precepts and preferences. Another thing that will help us to get this fellowship thing working is to understand the model of the Apostle Paul and commit ourselves to following the apostolic model. Let me give you an illustration of it. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says exactly what his, his, his approach was, his model, his philosophy of ministry. He says, when I'm reaching out to the Jewish people, I adjust my methodology and my approach so that I can connect with those Jewish people because I want to win them to Jesus. When I'm reaching out to Gentile people, I, congest, I adjust and, and uh, uh, work with my modeling and my approach so that I can connect with those Gentile people because I want to win them to faith in Jesus. When I'm reaching out to those who are weak in faith, I change my approach because I want to connect with them so that I can lead them on into maturity. Do you see the apostolic model? Here's the model that Jesus gave to the apostles. In John chapter 3, he spoke to a Jewish rabbi. In John chapter 4, he spoke to the woman of Samaria. In John chapter 5, he spoke to an ill, sick man. It's interesting that all three of these people became followers of Jesus. But Jesus' approach to the Jewish rabbi was very different than his approach to the Samaritan woman. And very different from his approach to this man. You see, that's the apostolic model that follows the tradition of Jesus. And we need to simply understand that so that we recognize that if we're going to connect with the builder generation, which is what we've got to do, if we're going to influence them and lead them on in the things of God, if we're going to connect to the builder generation, we need to adjust our methodology and our approach so we can connect with them. And the busters need to understand that. If we're going to connect with the boomers, then we need to adjust a methodology and approach so that we'll connect with the boomers. And the builders need to understand that. And if we're going to connect with the busters, we need to adjust our methodology and approach so that we'll connect with them. And the boomers need to understand that. And the builders need to understand that. You see, understanding that provides the context for cooperating in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but that's the challenge that we have. To understand that and appreciate that. When you take the Lord's model and the apostolic model, you discover three things. Their, method, their message rather never changed. 
The message of the Christian church never changes. The gospel is an unchanging message. It's a story of a loving God who reaches out to sinful, rebellious, indifferent men and women who makes provision for the forgiveness of their sin by sending his very own son down to die and pay the penalty for the sin. And then to open his arms and give them a free invitation for forgiveness and salvation if they'll come and receive into their life and become a follower of Jesus. That's the gospel message. And that message never changes. The motive never changes. It's always to reach them and bring them to faith and grow them in faith. The motive never changes. But ladies and gentlemen, the method must change. The method needs to be geared for builders or it needs to be changed so that it's going to be geared to the boomers or it needs to be changed and adapted so that it's going to connect with the busters. The methodology, the approach, that's always open to change. And that's what will help us to build the kind of fellowship that will move us forward together in the cause of the kingdom of God in spite of all the diversity that's amongst us here. It's simply buying into the apostolic model. The last thing I want to mention in these things is that you need to be a person of faith because faith is responding to God's initiatives and it's a response with a, with a step of trust. And it takes a lot of faith for people in these different generations to take the kind of steps that respond to the circumstances in order to get the message out and in order to connect with these sub-generations. So that's my perspective on how we build fellowship in a church where there's enormous perplex, enormous diversity so that it won't tear us apart into our sub-generations, but it will strengthen us together with our sub-generations so that we move forward together in order to advance the kingdom of God. 21st century churches are churches and leaders who are in touch with their times and they're in step with the Spirit of God. Interestingly, the last thing that was said of these men of Issachar was that the 200 people, leaders, had the support of all the tribe. When the plan of action was put to the vote, everybody was for it. I look at it and I say, boy, how did the leaders ever get that kind of support? I know elders and pastors who would give two arms and a leg for have that kind of support from the church. How do you get that kind of unity with all the diversity for a strategic plan of action that's calculated to connect with the different segments of our generation today? How do you get that kind of unity? Well, maybe the secret is in the leadership. I suspect that was true in this case. Don't know much about those 200 leaders, except that they were men of courage. They were men of vision. They were men of faith. And I know enough about people and I know enough about churches to know that churches with people love leadership that is courageous, that is visionary, and that's willing to run some risks and trust God for impossible kinds of things. The fourth thing, I'm not sure about these men because I don't know enough about them. But I know today, the fourth element that's absolutely indispensably required if the church is going to get behind the leadership at any level is personal integrity. 
So let's assume that these people were men of integrity, of proven integrity. And so when the vote comes, the tribe is all behind them. They stand up and they all move forward together. Wow. What a delight that must have been to the heart of God. And that's exactly what it is. When he sees a Christian church with all the diversities that has the potential for tearing apart a church and breaking people into subgenerations, seeing them cooperating together and moving forward together for the kingdom of God and doing it because they've got a biblical concept of fellowship. It's cooperating for the advance of the kingdom. Well, may God grant that that will be Rexdale Alliance Church. If God gives you that kind of leadership, back it, support it, move forward. Don't be an obstacle. Don't be in the enemy camp. Move forward with them. If you're in a leadership position, be that kind of person. Be that kind of leader so that those who are behind will stand up and follow because of the quality of leadership that you offer and the quality of Christian life that you present. 21st century churches are committed to serving their generation. And they do it together. Let's pray. Well now, Father, we just want to commit this church to you in a very special way with all of the diversity that's present in such a dynamic group of people. Our prayer, Lord, is that there will be a unity that will be expressed in cooperating with one another to move forward and to advance the kingdom of God. I pray for the leadership this morning. I pray for the congregation and ask that the enemy will not have a foothold, that God will be glorified, that the kingdom will be built as they move forward to serve their generation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.